Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Adriana Robertson. She is a professor of law and finance at the University of Toronto. Adriana, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Adriana has written three articles, which are available on her website at the University of Toronto. You can uh, Google uh, her work and, and find them. And they address what I think is uh, a really important issue for all of our audience about the very nature of passive investing. Uh, the articles highlight how important passive investing has become for investors over the last several decades. She has the most recent numbers through 2019, 2020, that it's kind of taken over much of the, the space. And, and uh, as most of our listeners will know, also from an academic perspective, passive investing has seized the academy uh, with a vengeance. There are hardly any professors left who are in favor of any uh, active decision-making under conditions of uncertainty. Hint, hint, that's a key phrase. They are all in favor of of really just uh, uh, diversification defined as owning everything and not trying to make any uh, conscious decisions. And uh, previous episodes of the show have highlighted how that came to be in the academy. But uh, the nuts and bolts of passive investing, what goes into those passive products, really, I think, Adrian, I want to congratulate you for uh, spearheading a kind of an academic look under the hood. It's a phrase I've used with clients when we discuss active versus passive. I say, fine, please just look under the hood. If you like what's there, go ahead. Spoiler alert, I have yet to find a single client who's actually looked under the hood of the passive. They take the wor- their word passive as a given don't question what it means, and that's what we have now. So how, how did you come upon this? I, I can tell from your academic record you've written on numerous topics, but how did you come upon uh, this issue of passive not being so passive and the legal, not only investment, but legal implications of that? Yeah, so as you said, there's basically no one in the academy in either finance or corporate law, uh, for that matter, who isn't and hasn't been for several years kind of obsessed with the rise of index investing and what that means and from a corporate governance perspective you know what all of this means for uh, well governance Um, and so you know i got interested in it just the way everybody else did but as i was reading it was really clear to me that gosh these indices are really really important uh, and they seem to be making all these decisions and all this money seems to be following them I better find the paper that's going to explain to me how the indices make their decisions and where they come from, because gosh, they're awfully important. And so I I started looking around for this article that was going to explain this to me, and I I couldn't find it. And so eventually I realized, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to go find the answer for myself. And that's sort of how I started down this rabbit hole. And so you begin to, again, layman's term, uh, look under the hood, and what you're finding is is really quite striking. I don't know uh, where you want to start, maybe with the journal the, of the three articles, uh, the one that is published already in the widely read Yale Journal on Regulation, volume 36. I think it starts on page 795 for those of you who are leafing through your at-home copies from 2019, Passive in Name Only, uh, Delegated Management and Index Investing. The other article that's on your website, which is very similar or not similar, but part of this uh, addressing of passive is 
uh, Closet Active Management of Passive Funds. And that is a working paper. And the third one is the misuse of well-named, and it's going to get a lot of traction. I think it already has, frankly, in, uh, in certain circles, the misuses of the S&P 500 uh, as an active and passive vehicle. So what, where did your research take you uh, first? And, and I don't even know where, 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 where do you want to begin to look under the hood? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the way I started was uh, I went to go try to find the methodology documents associated with all of the indices that were being used either as benchmarks or being tracked by index funds. Because I figured, okay, well, again, since I couldn't find the paper that told me how they made decisions, I figured I needed to go and read it for myself, read them for myself. And what I discovered was if you stop and think about it for like three seconds, it really shouldn't be all that surprising. And that's that these indices don't just fall out of the sky. Somebody makes them and making them involves making all sorts of decisions. And there's nothing kind of nefarious or you know bad about it. It's just the nature of things. Uh, even if you just wanted to make a large cap index with no discretion, no nothing, uh, you still have to decide where you want to draw the line between large and not large, right? Do you want it to be 500 stocks, 1,000 stocks, 200 stocks? That's a choice. And that choice is inevitably going to affect what your index looks like. And so once you kind of realize that, and again, it's not rocket science, then the whole notion of passive investing starts to start to look a little bit shaky. Um, and then, you know, the more you press on this, the more it turns out that, well, actually, most of these indices aren't as simple as give me the X largest stocks or the Y smallest stocks. Uh, they have all sorts of other decisions that go into making them. And so what's implied there and becomes explicit in your articles is that, uh, and I, I led in with one of my favorite phrases about finance, that uh, decision-making under conditions of uncertainty is sort of a central tenet of why modern finance exists. And my words, not yours, uh, the rise of passive investing is a, an effort to have an end run around decision-making. And then in the academic literature, uh, there's a large literature on saying, well, actually doing an end run that is not making a decision is just as good and probably cheaper than trying to make a decision. So here you have two birds and, and one stone. You, you don't have to make decisions and it's probably better for you anyhow. And that turns out maybe not to be the case, at least the first of those, that decisions are being made. They're just under the hood. And most investors are going in and saying, well, this is passive. The word passive means passive. There is some generally assumed shared definition of it, but it turns out that there are decision makers, investment committees behind each of these passive products and that uh, they're making decisions that you're basically not aware of. You may agree with them, you may not agree with them, but it probably behooves you to know, know what they are. That's absolutely right. And in fact, there's a, there's a fourth paper because this really did kind of become a bit of a rabbit hole for me. It's also on my website. It's also forthcoming uh, in the Harvard Business Law Review. We with the co-author uh, Paul Mahoney, who's at the University of Virginia. And there, that one's titled Advisors by Another Name. Uh, and so there we just make the point that, you know, if you buy an index fund, I'm sort of allergic to the term passive fund because I don't consider them passive, hence uh, passive in name only. There's still somebody making decisions. It's just that rather than it be the advisor, the fund advisor or the sub-advisor, it's whoever's making that index, right? But exactly as you said, you can't get away from the fact that somebody's making decisions. It's just a question of who they are uh, and whether you kind of know 
how they're being compensated, what their incentives are, and what exactly is going on in their decision-making process. And, and as a law professor, you also point out there's significant legal implications about being uh, making investment decisions for other people. I'm in that line of business. I am highly, highly regulated. Every every action, and there are boards, there are investment advisors, there are compliance departments behind each of them, and they all work their way back in the U.S., not in Canada, but to other regulatory authorities. But in the U.S., back to securities laws that were created really in the 1930s and through the 1940s, uh, designed to make up for what happened happened in the great crash. And with significant evolution, nevertheless, those laws on the books from 1933 and 34 really matter. And they take the definition of an investment advisor pretty seriously. And there are credentialing issues and, and accountability issues all associated with that. And the index world kind of, I'm, I'm not 100% certain, but they get they, they don't have to really do much of that at all or anywhere near as much. And that seems to bother you. It bothers me as well. But you point out that, you know, there are, uh, they are not subject to the same regulatory oversight as so-called active managers. That's right. So, and that's sort of a concern that Paul and I have in that particular paper, because that's more of a, a law-y uh, paper. And we actually think that, especially when we get down to the specialized indices, and so we haven't really talked about this, but you mentioned the S&P 500 early on, and I kind of alluded to big indices like, say, the Russell 1000. But anybody that's been following the ETF market knows that there's been an explosion in different types of indices that are all being created so that everyone can create a, an ETF to track it. And in those cases, uh, we've got these specialized indices that are really created so that a fund can track it, often working hand in glove, uh, with the the ETF or the fund uh, company. And now, at least as far as Paul and I are concerned, a, a careful reading of the Investment Advisors Act and the Investment Companies Act, those guys actually look an awful lot like investment advisors to us. Yeah, as a historian, it's amazing because the, the uh, Investment Advisors Act, I think from 1940 and the, the other one from 33, 34, those are you know, 80, 85, seven years ago, 88 years ago, and yet they're still, and they've been revised and updated, but still, we are operating under that framework in response to a crisis. There was a crisis, regulatory uh, structure emerged, and it's still important to to play by those rules. There was a striking figure in in your research, and I don't know, I don't recall which of the articles, but something to the effect that seventy five percent of indices or ETFs are unique in that they only have one client going in the other direction, one ETF and one index, and that the index advisor. Uh, is an affiliate, the, the index creator is an affiliate of the investment advisor that makes the ETF. Yes, that's right. So that was in, I think, passive in name only. I think it was, it's over 75%. I think it's actually almost 80% of the indices that I, I looked at because I went and you know, read about all of them were being tracked by one and only one fund. Uh, so, you know, the idea that there's some index out there in the world and we're just going to passively track it because it just sort of falls out of the sky I mean, that just clearly isn't what's going on in the bulk of ETFs and index funds, at least if we look by number, not necessarily by AUM, because, of course, the largest by AUM often are tracking uh, big, well-known indices, which, again, have their own kind of question marks sometimes. 
So let's talk about the S&P 500 if we, if we can. It is uh, the dominant index. I forget, as of 2018, I think it was $9.9 trillion index to it. That number will have changed over the last few years, but it, it's enormous. And you dedicate an entire article to the uses and aptly titled misuses of the S&P 500. What, what are the key points that you want people to think who are, and again, I don't want to over-dramatize this because I'm, I'm a participant in the industry and I have an, uh, a position in, in regard to this intellectually and professionally, but what would you, even if you weren't speaking to me, you know, uh, summarize your concerns about how people interpret? Again, there's nothing wrong with investing in the S&P 500 now that that's possible to do via index funds, but what do you wish people understood more about investing in either an index fund or the or the ETF of the S&P 500? Yeah, so, so exactly start out by just saying that I have nothing against the S&P 500 or any other index really for that matter. Um, the only objection that I have, and this is why I'm uh, the title of the article is the misuses of the S&P 500. So it's not that there's anything wrong with the index. There's just a problem with the way we use the index. And so the biggest thing that I would want people to realize is again, the S&P 500 doesn't just fall out of the sky. The idea that it's sort of this passive thing that exists out in the platonic ether and, you know, we just track it or it's some kind of mystical benchmark against which we should compare all our investment decisions or it's some mystical benchmark against which we should, you know, look at CEOs or look at individual constituents of the index to see if their corporate performance that year outperformed, you know, their peers on the index. This is what I think is a misuse of a perfectly fine index that captures, you know, 500 large and large-ish companies in the United States. That index, you know, it's just 500 large, large-ish companies. Uh, it's not necessarily the 500 largest, so it's not purely passive in the sense that, you know, on the first trading day of the year, we look at what the 500 largest companies were on the last trading day of the last year and put them together. Right? That's not what the index does, and they don't claim that it is, right? So they're not you know, misleading anyone. The only thing that's, I think, slightly misleading is when people refer to an index fund that tracks that index as being passive. Right? And many people, and you know, they're often marketed that way for you know, a variety of reasons that we could speculate about, uh, but there's no doubt that they are. And if you just read the prospectuses of S&P 500 funds, they call themselves passive. Well, Somebody is making decisions, right? If to use your term, we look under the hood, there is an index committee and it decides whether Tesla is going to be added to the index or not. That was the one I was going to mention because that, that on my end of the, the process, that got a great deal of attention. I, I prefer not to mention individual security names, but it's wonderful that, um, thank you for you mentioning it. Uh, uh, that one got a lot of attention when it was being worked through the index committee as to how it would be included under what justification and so forth. And it really, I think, highlighted even for those who are believe the S&P 500 index is a, is a passive investment creature, highlighted that, well, there's around the edges, it's not so passive. And, and that was a very visible example of that. Yeah. And given that it's a market cap weighted index, you know, adding that one company, it's not a trivial change to the overall index. And again, nothing wrong with that particular company or security, nothing wrong with including it or not. Uh, the point is simply that it's a choice and it's not a passive thing to decide or not. 
And I think it came in around one and a half percent. I could be wrong. One, one and a half. It was a pretty big number. Uh, so the S and P five hundred. Let's let's go over some of those issues. There's turnover. There's an inclusion committee. The Russell one thousand is a little bit more mechanical, mathematical. Again, it's not that it doesn't have an it, it, it doesn't have the same index committee that is more subjective. But if you don't know the math of the Russell one thousand value, someone chose the math, and that is a subjective exercise. Uh, and so we see this. Throughout, and it, it is the path of least resistance, particularly for retail investors, but even for institutional investors with whom I deal with on a daily basis, to semantically say passive. Are we academically oriented people arguing over semantics? Maybe, but as you've pointed out, I think in your article, and I see on a daily basis, uh, these semantics matter. It really isn't uh, passive. It's, I, I think. Again, I don't want to get too polemical, though I do, but I'll try not to, that uh, you know, it's an abnegation of responsibility and trying to avoid the reality of decision-making under conditions of uncertainty by thinking, that, hey, here's a clever solution. I don't have to make a decision. This is a passive product when, in fact, as you, you've pointed out, you're just delegating. Let's move on to that uh, element of your work. Delegating, I forget the, the phrase right, delegating managerial responsibility to uh, another entity. Do you want to describe that a little bit about delegated management? Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly what we do every time we hire an investment advisor or invest in a mutual fund of any kind, or frankly, buy shares in a company that we don't directly manage, right? If you just buy individual stocks of company XYZ, uh, you are delegating that management to the CEO and the board of that company, right? So this is in the nature of investing is delegating decision-making to a third party, whether it's the company or an advisor or a fund. And I guess all I wanna do is remind people that in the context of index investing, you're still delegating it to someone. It's just that now it's whoever's making that index. I use the example of, uh, in, in my uh, kind of framework, it's agency costs, and this these are natural agency costs. And framework of agency costs is fairly well developed. I, I think it's suitable for what I do as a minority shareholder, meaning not a majority shareholder of large uh, publicly traded corporations, that there's a, boy, is there a value chain there? It starts with the clients and then the intermediaries gets to me. And then we uh, take the shares and uh, uh, elect, participate in the proxy process for the board. The board hires the CEO. It doesn't happen that way, but it's that's in theory how it happens. The CEO hires the other executives. The other executives uh, hire the employees and things get done. There is a fizzy drinks company based in Atlanta, Georgia, fairly well known, Red Cans. Uh, it's been a pretty successful investment since 1919, over a century, publicly traded. Uh, but uh, as much as I might enjoy their refreshing beverage or uh, being an owner of the company, I don't want to work in the factory, uh, making the concentrate. I'm not clever enough to come up with the jingles. I certainly don't want to drive the truck trucks dragging the the cases of beverage around. So. I choose to become a minority shareholder in said company, but I knowingly accept the agency costs of they're never going to get Coke Zero to taste exactly the way I want it. And I have to make do with the fact that the new formulation of Coke Zero isn't as good, still tasty, but not as good as the prior formulation of Coke Zero. And I'm at peace with that because I, I again, 
don't want to spend 100% of my time uh, working as an employer manager of said company. And that's the beauty of the stock market allows us to take minority stakes in companies, but we have to acknowledge the the offset of an agency cost. And what you're, again, maybe more putting words in your mouth, but passive investing seems to try to do an end run around acknowledgement of the agency costs or the delegated management is uh, written in your work. And I think that investors need to wake up and realize that there is no end run around that delegation or that agency cost. I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that it's not just, you know, semantic. Uh, I think it actually does matter uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we have the entire structure of corporate law and the securities proxy process that runs through both corporate and securities law, because we realize that in the context of fizzy drinks, we have these agency issues and we have to manage them and we have to make sure that the process works for everyone as best it can. And in the context of traditional funds, the 40 Act, uh, the Investment Company Act, we also have a whole infrastructure set up around dealing with that delegated management as well. And so when we're talking about the indices, uh, because, you know, again, my hypothesis would be that the idea of index investing kind of grew up slowly over time. And so when it first started out, maybe we weren't super worried about it. Uh, It's really exploded. And we've got, as you said, these 80 plus year old statutes that are trying to deal with a world that just doesn't really look the way it did 80 years ago. And it's nobody's fault. And, And it's not like people at the SEC don't realize this either. It's just they've got an awful lot going on that they need to manage. Uh, and they're kind of working hard in good faith, but you know, there's only so much they can do. They're just humans. So I think it behooves investors to be cognizant of these agency problems or at least concerns. And at the very least, be sure that they understand they're not just buying a passive product here and, and all passive quote unquote uh, funds are not the same. And the number of conversations I've had with pretty sophisticated people where they just say, well, you know, my money's in index funds. And I ask them, well, what, what index? And they just kind of look at me and they're like, oh, you know, the market. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, which one? Or the number of sophisticated professional managers, money managers, who've come up to me after I've presented some of this work and said, oh, you know, really interesting. Uh, you know, I called my guys while you were talking uh, to to ask them what our benchmark index is, because, <laughs> oh my God, you don't know what your benchmark is. Oh, you know, we beat the benchmark. You're like, I don't know what that means if you don't know what the benchmark is. So let's let's go a little bit to beating the benchmark and and some of the material in the in the piece closet active management of passive funds. One of the working papers, you know, you highlight that in addition to people not knowing what's under the hood, that it creates performance issues. That so-called passive funds can uh, kind of swing wildly intellectually in certain ways and have uh, in a more quantitative element of your work uh, shown that, you know, some of the statistics around them, they aren't necessarily as passive as they appear, not just from this intellectual sense that there's delegated uh, uh, responsibility or management to someone making choices, but an actual total return performance and volatility and correlation. They're a lot more volatile than people would assume. Do you want to discuss that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So what we did with that 
paper. I mean, part of it is, I wanted to dig a little deeper. Part of it is I would get this pushback from people saying, well, okay, fine, you know, index X does this and index Y does that, but does it really matter at the end of the day? You know, okay, maybe it matters around the margins for corporate governance, but does it matter for returns? Does it matter for investors? In other words, you know, those friends of mine who don't know what fund they're invested in, maybe it doesn't actually make a difference to them. And so what we did here was we said, all right, well, let's just take some really standard off-the-shelf measures of how active a fund is from the actively managed mutual fund space. And let's just take some really standard measures of you know, exposure that funds have, again, just straight off the shelf from the literature, and let's just apply them to these so-called passive funds and, and see what we see. And it turns out that kind of roughly, give or take, you know, depending on how you measure it, roughly a third of the index funds and ETFs in our sample, and this is all of the ones in CRISP, have more activeness uh, based on these very traditional measures of what an active fund is doing than the median actively managed fund, right? So a third of them are more active than the median active fund. What are we saying when we say that these are passive? Or if we look at the factor exposure, often they have higher exposure to price risk factors than sort of active funds. So, so what does it mean to call them passive then? I just don't even know what conceptually we mean. So this kind of goes back to my earlier statement that I'm sort of allergic to the idea of or the term passive uh, investing, because I don't think that it's true either intellectually, because somebody is making decisions, but it's also not even true financially, because based on traditional measures, they're not passive. One of the traditional measures by which they, they do meet the standard, uh, to take the other side, is, is turnover. And you, 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 I don't believe you mentioned turnover. You do look at the risk factors and risk weightings. But they generally do have lower turnover uh, ratios, by almost by definition, than, than compared to an active. I, I don't know that you uh, address that explicitly. I may have missed that. But I think that's, is that a fair statement? So, you know, we do have in the paper some, some turnover ratio uh, measures. So, you know, on average, are they, do they have lower turnover? Sure, um, but not universally so. And so it, also in terms of expense ratio, so that's another place people look is that, well, you know, they're pretty cheap. Well, I mean, yes, on average they are. And if you value weight, so, you know, market cap weight, of course, you know, those really, really ultra cheap uh, funds are gonna bring down the average, but that just, makes the point, I think, even more clearly that you have to be really careful as an investor about which of these so-called passive products you want to buy. Because there exists plenty that, that do have really low turnover, namely the market cap weighted ones. But think about all of the equally weighted ETFs and index funds out there in the market. Well, those guys are going to have pretty high turnover right? because they have to keep reweighting all the time. So let me, let me provide a little bit of pushback, not for me, because trust me, I, I am really in agreement with you for many, many reasons. But the pushback that I get in, in the marketplace, one is uh, at least some of the manufacturers have very quickly figured out the, the semantics and that they're kind of on the wrong side of the semantics. And they said, listen, this is a rules-based uh, exercise. And we as the index creators or the ETF advisors, uh, we actually do put the rules uh, on, on the website. And although nobody checks other than Adriana Robertson at the University of Toronto, uh, they are there and legally or 
in terms of a paper trail, it's rules-based. Here are our rules. Our thematic ETFs, because again, many of the most popular ETFs are not broad-based anymore. They are by definition thematic as opposed to uh, just the entire market. So there's an assumption that someone is making an active decision, the investor, that they want a biotech ETF. And here's a biotech ETF. Its internal construction may be passive-ish, but just the choice of biotech is is itself an active decision. But here are the rules. If you like the rules, buy the product. If you don't, don't. But people just buy it based on the name. It's passive and it's biotech. So a cho- one big choice has been made. The others are passive. And, and so they say it's rules-based. It's not, it's not passive. And we're very comfortable with this rules-based notion. And I think most of your arguments still apply. Where's the committee? Yes, you put the rules on your website, but nobody looks at them. And what is your legal uh, accountability in the same way that a bio- actively managed biotech fund might might have? And the answer is basically uh, uh, basically none. And so uh, have you had any pushback for articles, which I think are, are very semantically rich, whether you're, you're, have you gotten any pushback saying, listen, this is, you're just playing with names here? Yeah, and I, I think it, it is certainly true that you can find the methodology document if you look hard enough. And as you say, I, I did and I read them. And even though I am both uh, a law professor and a finance professor, I can attest to you that reading these documents, it is impossible for me to replicate those indices. So in other words, they might give you a set of rules. Uh, often it's you know one or two pages. Um, and it is not in any way the type of formula that I could you know, download data from either the stock exchange or the standard Bloomberg or whatever else. And based on the rules, I can't replicate the index. Right? So they may well have rules and I'm sure they do. Uh, and I'm sure they've got something programmed ready to go, but I can't figure out what they are. Um, and that's okay. Right? Because I also can't do that for an actively managed mutual fund, right? where the active manager tells me, well, you know, this is more or less the strategy I'm pursuing, because after all, they have to do that in their prospectus, too. And so, you know, the idea that it's rules based and here are the rules, there you go. It's in my experience, maybe this is just my own incompetence. Um, these are not the types of rules that are being disclosed that actually provide uh, the ability for me to replicate what they're doing. And maybe that's, you know, there's very good reasons for that. After all, it's their secret sauce and they wouldn't want to give it away. And I I have no issue with that. But I think it's probably not really fair to then say, no, 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 uh, we're not making decisions here. You, You could see the formula for yourself. So I, I, for those of you who are uh, willing and able to go to the website and download the papers and read them, there are actually the footnotes in the papers and the supplements are, are kind of interesting where you describe your methodology. And you do describe in the various papers how you manually had to go through the prospecti and the, the websites and you gathered all this and that you have a research assistant and then a senior research assistant, and then uh, like a graduate, whenever there's a dispute, then a graduate student, and then it works its way up because if the rules are not clear, it wasn't a simple tabulation because there is no single reporting formula for how an ETF is created or the underlying index. And so there was a lot of manual subjective work, it sounded like, by a team of people with increasing responsibility as to understand what the rules were. That I'm just telling that story because it seems rather opaque, the, the exercise that you felt the need to, it wasn't a simple crisp download, 
which you would not need to describe in great detail for your audience. Uh, this was a lot of manual work that you chose to explain in the articles how the data collection was occurring because it was it's basically words uh, collecting sets of words. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess maybe part of this is like trust a law professor to come up with an overly complicated appeal system. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I did, I think it, it's important to be very clear uh, because, you know, this is, again, I have no problem with index investing and, you know, for what it's worth, most of my assets are in index funds, right, because they are cheap. Uh, but I promise you, I know how those indices are constructed and I, I pick them just as carefully as I would uh, any other manager. And so, you know, this is not at all to say that I have anything against index investment products. Um, I And so everything that I do in, in the research, I try to be as fair as I possibly can. Uh, and I really just want to describe the world as it is uh, and help to try to clarify some of what I think are, are misperceptions about this really important market, which has you know, created a lot of value for investors. We call it legally and semantically flabby, and you're calling out that flabbiness. Though I, I would say also kind of ringing the bell of the SEC and saying, listen, there should be a, a greater, it's not just flabby, uh, it's, there, there should be an actual degree of greater oversight. Yeah, I mean, I think you know one of the, the expressions that I sometimes use is, I, I think, we don't, I don't want investors to be misled about what they're doing. And so if you, you know, sell someone a toaster and you give them a television set, like it could be a totally nice television, but they wanted a toaster and they thought they were getting a toaster. And it's not right to then hand them a television. Like you, you can't, you shouldn't be doing that. Okay. So let, let me ask one last kind of a, uh, Final question, uh, which intersects back to your the finance part. I really get your concerns about the flabbiness, the semantics, the looking under the hood from a legal perspective. I think that's completely justified. On the finance side of the equation, the academic literature is overwhelming. I've been battling with this for myself for the last five five years in uh, myself, uh, a book on modern portfolio theory, critique, and, and my current work on the academic literature for and against uh, uh, different types of investing. And it, it's overwhelmingly almost you know 100% in favor of passive and a market efficiency through a different avenue, one we have not discussed since probably late in the show to start the market efficiency discussion. But the point is that as a result of supposed market efficiency that creates the academic and intellectual space to create uh, so-called passive uh, products, uh, rules-based products. And they have conquered the field. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, at least the academic field and much of the actual business field. As you were doing your work and sharing, because I, I could see that you presented to a lot of academic conferences, were you also getting any pushback, not from the legal side, where I think you're really, really steady, firm ground and, and absolutely correct in all your points, but from the finance side saying, listen, this, even if they're slightly biased, they're still much better than active management and intellectually they're vastly superior. Have you, have you gotten any feedback like that? Yeah. So I think the, the first, and, and my response is always, well, maybe, um, you know, the ones that are cap weighted, um, pretty kind of low turnover. The, the paradigmatic index fund does align pretty well with modern portfolio theory and sort of everything that we teach in, 
you know, first year MBA finance courses. But I think part of what I've been trying to ring the bell on is there's a lot of these so-called passive funds that just bear no resemblance to what you would want to buy if you were trying to get at the sort of optimal portfolio from a modern portfolio theory perspective. And so just as we have this proliferation of sort of closet index funds uh, that people have been talking about for about you know, a decade now, there is this proliferation on the other side of funds that call themselves passive that I would, again, if I had to speculate, think that in large part they exist precisely because people have been saying for the last several decades by passive, uh, it's the way to go. You're going to get, you know, good diversification. You're going to reduce your risk and maximize your returns. And that's any fool knows that you should just buy passive. Um, so you can now kind of buy something that calls itself passive that really bears no resemblance at all to that. And so one of the things we find in uh, the closet active management paper is just as in this closet indexer literature, the funds that claim to be active but are really just tracking an index, they tend to underperform. We find that the funds that market themselves as passive but are really very active, they also tend to underperform. And you call them, by the way, closet activists as opposed to, uh, you know, closet activists is uh, among the so-called passive to, to reverse the semantically nice, the, um, the active managers who are hugging the index. I, I like that. So where, where are you going with this work? You mentioned a fourth paper that uh, takes it down to the uh, uh, investment advisor, the, the uh, financial advisor level. Where, where is the research heading now? You know, we'll see. We got to get the, the two that are still in working paper form over the line. Um, and, you know, at least one of them is sort of geared more towards an academic finance audience, which means the publication process is slow and arduous. Uh, so that's sort of the, the priority on that front for now. Okay. Well, we will look forward to those coming out. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, they are available on your website. I think they're very provocative and Investment advisors, investors, institutional gatekeepers should be uh, should be aware of this. I think many of us know this, and uh, I certainly know it because I'm on the other side of the of the ideological debate. But even those that are strongly in favor of the the passive structure should definitely take a look. My guest has been Adriana Robertson. She is a professor of law and finance at the University of Toronto. Adriana, thank you so much for for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me.